For those that are just joining now, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the 17th installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. Today, we're talking about improving patient experiences in clinical genetics. A note from our sponsor of the series, Phenotips. Phenotips is a complete solution for medical genetics. Phenotips has designed software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow. Tools like pedigree builders, human phenotype oncology capture, and diagnostic insights. Many of us, if not all of us, have struggled with EMRs, EHRs, electronic health records, whatever you're calling them, because they're not necessarily built for genetics and for all of us working in genetics and genomics. So Phenotips is able to fill in these gaps by providing a unified and seamless genetics workflow. And in light of the pandemic, that's how this webinar series started, Phenotips is sponsoring our speaker series here. And as I mentioned, I'm your host, Kira Deneen. I'm also the host of DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast that I've hosted for the past 10 years. We've won the best 2020 and 2021 Science and Medicine Podcast Award. And we have very similar conversations to the ones that we're going to have today in this webinar. So feel free to check that out, dnapodcast.com. There's over 170 episodes on there. And I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor. So that's the background that I'm coming from. So enough from me, I'd like to hear from each of our panelists, just for them to be able to introduce themselves to you. And then we can get started with, we have a lot to talk about today. So Dr. Campbell, would you like to start with introducing yourself to our listeners and viewers here? Sure. Uh, I'm Ian Campbell. Uh, my pronouns are, are he and him. And uh, I am a clinical geneticist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, I specialize in neurodevelopmental disorders, and then I also am a physician scientist and uh, study both access to, to genetic care in the clinic and also try to make discoveries in rare disease. Fantastic. Dr. Kumar, would you like to continue? I'm Ajit Kumar. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I am a genetics consultant based at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, UK. Uh, I have an interest in both rare diseases and cancer. Uh, with a special interest in uh, neuroendocrine tumors and also an interest in using information technology to improve patient experience. All right, and to finish us off, uh, Dr. Sokadi. Hi, uh, Bimal Chaudhary, my pronouns are he and him. I'm a clinical geneticist as well as a practicing neonatologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Um, in Columbus, Ohio, but I'm also a physician scientist um, and I study uh, ways that um, information technology and computational methods can improve the delivery of uh, genomic medicine in acute and critical care settings. So I actually focus on inpatient genetic testing um, as opposed to the ambulatory setting which we're going to get into later in our installment here. Um, and I love the focus on rare disease as well as it's rare disease month. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to cover some of that as well. So thank you all for introducing yourselves. Um, and as a reminder, as we get into questions that I have, I have a lot of questions, but I want to prioritize your questions as the viewers. So feel free to submit those in the Q&A box during our talk today. I wanted to start the conversation today by talking about and identifying what are the biggest challenges that patients face in clinical genetic care so that we can start at this point and see where we want to go from there. Um, anybody want to start us off in terms of identifying some of the biggest challenges that patients are facing? 
All right, Dr. Sokati, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, so I, so I have a perhaps somewhat controversial take on this, but I think the biggest barrier is actually just getting folks in the door. I think that clinical geneticists and genomic medicine in general, we've made tremendous strides in terms of recognizing um, appropriate testing and really shortening diagnostic odysseys once folks get to us. Um, but I think that there is a lot to be gained by actually getting people in the door. They're, they're essentially people who don't even know that they could benefit from genomic medicine. And so this is the one and only figure that I'm gonna um, toss up to share with your viewers. Um, but this is unpublished data from an ongoing single center study um, at our center, um, looking at the odyssey from admission to our hospital to um, the endpoint of their inpatient genomic medicine diagnostic odyssey. Um, and so on the horizontal axis are the individual cases. This figure was drawn for the first 97 subjects. Um, and on the vertical axis is the number of days. Zero day is the day that samples were actually sent to our lab for rapid genome sequencing. And so positive day counts are times that our research lab had the sample and were working to um, uh, at least produce a preliminary result. And the negative days are all the days that the child was in the hospital, but didn't have samples that had made it to um, the lab. And you can see that um, most of the variability um, at this point at a single center that has a rapid genome sequencing program is actually in the time from admission to consultation with the genetic service, which is the beige bars, or the time it takes our genetics consultants to actually recommend um, rapid genome sequencing, the pink bars, or the time it takes to actually get the samples for the TRIO, for example, um, to the lab, which is the purple bars. And so we're really good at making sequencers go fast. And geneticists are pretty good at seeing patients for inpatient consultations. We really struggle still to get people to the geneticist door. Um, and so I think that's one of our biggest barriers actually. And how do you think that we can start approaching this in terms of resolving this issue? Because you're saying that once a genetics healthcare provider is with a patient, things move fairly quickly, especially in terms of testing. Um, you know, turnaround times are, are really fast compared to what they used to be. But the issue that you're identifying, correct me if I'm wrong, is just getting them to actually see that provider and identifying who needs to see a genetics provider. Yep. What do we need to change? Do we need to change the education of more healthcare providers to know, oh, this is a genetics case? Or do we need to change something on our end as genetic providers to be reaching out to patients? I mean, what are your thoughts on like how we can start to address this? So I'd be eager to hear what my colleagues have to say, particularly if there are different solutions that are present in the context of the NHS. But I think that Sure, part of it is potentially education, you know, for these are who needs to be referred. But I think parts of it are also likely things like, can we leverage electronic health records, which are not necessarily designed to recognize rare disease patients, but can we recognize them to have you have EHRs trigger people who need engagement with the genomic medicine service earlier? Um, or do we need to move the delivery of more and more genomic medicine services 
out into primary care settings um, and start um, that process earlier. Yeah, Dr. Kumar, definitely jump in. So uh, even in a publicly funded healthcare system like the NHS, uh, access is a big problem. Um, and particularly practicing in a city like London, where you know uh, about 35% of the population were born outside of the UK. So there are lots of factors like language, cultural factors, socioeconomic factors uh, that come into play as well. Um, um, and, and also the issue of, um, you know, the turnaround time of tests. So, um, you know, the, we, we had a model whereby, you know, patients needed to get referred to the clinical genetic service before they could have a test. Now, we are moving more towards mainstreaming of genetic testing. So, you know, for patients to have genetic testing within the context of the speciality they were originally seen in. Um, so that is making a difference, but there's a huge amount of um, uh, training and teaching that needs to go uh, alongside that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, you know, access is a problem even in in in, a, in 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 the NHS. Yeah, definitely. And I see in the chat, I just wanted to bring up because this is relevant um, that Anne in the chat is saying, I think getting people in to see genetic providers could better workflow if the referring provider explained to the patient and family better why they are being referred. We have a high no-show rate at my clinic because patients don't know why they were referred and why it's important that they be seen. We also need more providers. So I think that's a good point um, that we'll probably reference multiple times. Um, but yeah, some, I, I see that even I'm working in the prenatal setting, but you know, certainly a lot of my patients come and sit down. And they're like, "Why am I here? Is something wrong?" And I'm like, "You know, most of the patients that I see, no, this is standard. I see all patients." Um, but you know, I think just having patients understand why they're going to an appointment and why it's important, I think Anne highlights a really, really good point there. Um, and just for the patients to understand, because oftentimes patients show up to appointments and they're like, "I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I guess I'll find out." Um, and if it doesn't seem very important and they've got other things going on in life, they're not going to prioritize it. Um, anything to add to any of this, Dr. Campbell? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that it's not a controversial position that you stated there, that you know, the that once a sample arrives in the lab, we're really good at coming to a diagnosis, but uh, getting getting the patient to the, to the care team is a major challenge. And I think um, what we would call clinical decision support, where we try to help other clinicians um, nudge them towards the right way is definitely the future of genetics care to get them in the door, so to speak. Um, and in my opinion, um, empowering the, the referring provider to have the information to explain why that referral is necessary and setting it up for success so that those no-show rates are lower is going to be critical to the part. Not only is it important to identify the appropriate patients that need the referral, but also empower the clinician that is acting on that information to get them to the, to the front door. Yeah, I think that's, that's important in figuring out ways that we can provide information maybe to these healthcare providers to say, here's a pamphlet or, or something to say, this is why it's important. And obviously it's going to differ per patient. Um, but what are, what are the main points of why someone's being referred to see genetics? Um, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I really want to dive into it because we do have providers here from the U S and the UK. So I want to learn a little bit more about what challenges are unique to both, both areas 
And if there are aspects of the healthcare system that we can like learn from each other and, and be adapting. Um, Dr. Kumar, you're coming from, or sorry, Dr. Campbell, why don't you jump in with that? Yeah, I think that the other critical challenge that we haven't quite addressed yet is at least in the ambulatory setting in the United States, insurance authorization is a major piece of the puzzle when it comes to genetic testing because in our healthcare system, genetic testing is expensive and our, our healthcare system is opaque in how much things are gonna cost. And so that uncertainty around cost and, and being able to get the authorization for those things is a critical barrier, barrier for at least ambulatory testing. Um, and so I think trying to work through those issues is going to be vitally important. And maybe we can learn from our colleagues who have more um, nationalized health systems on the benefits of, of making that work. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Anything else to add in, Dr. Kumar? Go ahead. So um, in the UK, you know, we used to have regional genetic services, um, about 25 of them, which have now been integrated into regional genetics laboratory hubs. So, and there are seven of them now. Uh, and previously, each genetic service had its own criteria for offering genetic testing. Uh, and it used to differ from you know, one part of the country to the other. Um, so more recently, uh, a national genomic test directory was introduced. And it gives you the criteria for testing, and it also tells us who can order the test. Um, and also, you know, we, it, um, we use the panel app, which is produced by the Genomics England. It's a crowdsourced um, resource where uh, genes are identified, uh, uh, you know, and, and fitted into panels that you know that we can then offer. Uh, and 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 it works with the National Genomic Test Directory, so it keeps evolving all the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Dr. Chirwardi, go ahead. Yeah, so I guess first to say um, thank you to um, uh, uh, NHS and the um, Genomic Medicine Service for Panel App. So our rapid genome sequencing program heavily leverages um, Panel App to facilitate um, uh, rapid uh, analysis and resolution of cases. So we we freely contribute and borrow heavily from uh, panel up within our own infrastructure. Um, it's what I would say is within local institutions in the US, at least, I think that there are some alternative um, models that get at some of the concerns that Dr. Campbell raised, which I think are huge. They're the elephant in the room in the US, really. Um, but we're, we at least in Columbus are lucky enough that we've made an institutional commitment. So one, we have a genome center, so we don't need to worry about sequencing costs that much, at least for our exomes and genomes, because we do them ourselves. And so we charge ourselves at cost. Um, but so we've made an institutional commitment that if a child is covered by a state health insurance program, which is essentially Medicaid um, in the US, um, it, the, there is no out-of-pocket cost for our families. So the, the hospital will just eat the cost for anybody, as long as a um, the appropriate uh, clinician thinks that it's medically indicated that the child get um, exome or genome sequencing, it will happen. Um, and for our commercially covered um, individuals, the state of Ohio has a supplemental insurance program specifically for um, children with rare diseases and, and on diagnostic odysseys. Um, and so we're able to sign them up. It certainly adds time because we need to get somebody to approve this. But essentially, since I've moved to Columbus, 
Uh, there has been no resident of the state of Ohio who hasn't been able to get testing for reasons of cost because the cost is ultimately zero in terms of um, cost to the patient at the point of care. Um, so oh, that's it, not it, something we have in every state. No, it is not. And so I say that partly because I'm incredibly proud of the institution and the commitment. It's a little bit of a, you know, braggadocio there. But the other piece of it is that these are choices that societies and governments make about how we allocate resources, both within healthcare and without. And this is a choice that one locale has made, essentially as a public-private partnership to say that genomic medicine for children with rare diseases is so important that cost cannot be the reason that children don't get tested. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I'm just wondering for that, is genetic testing cost, is that only in like the rare disease diagnosis space or is that for any genetic testing? Um, so it is for any genetic testing that is clinically indicated at the children's hospital. As a practical okay. matter, that's almost exclusively rare disease right. um, genetic testing. Um, and I also want to make sure that I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, do you mind pronouncing that again for me? Uh, Chaudhry. Chaudhry. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, anything else to add in terms of differences between the U.S., UK, UK what we can learn from that? Um one thing I've been puzzled by is, you know, um, some of the um, private U.S. companies offer big panels for $250, which is a lot more than the cost price for our NHS labs. And I don't, I don't understand. Are they, um, you know, undercutting other labs to gain market position? Dr. Campbell, jump in with that. Yeah, I think that this is another sort of elephant in the room where there are these large multinational corporations that are, are assembling huge portfolios of sequencing data at losses. Um, and so we have to wonder what they are planning to do with that data um, because it, does, it doesn't make economic sense that they would offer a test at a loss unless there's some other piece of, um, you know, there's something, there has to be something in it economically. And so in some cases, that's um, obviously spelled out in their consent forms that they're partnering with a drug company, for example, they're offering this free panel because they have the opportunity to identify participants for a possible drug trial. And that seems like a, a sort of upfront, everybody can understand the, the economic logic for that. And, and you could discuss those benefits and risks with the patient. But in other cases, um, I think that the economics and the, the data plans are sort of not as upfront. And, you know, it's something that I think everybody needs to consider when they're sending off genetic testing um, to companies that are obviously not able to cover the, the cost of that test with the amount they're charging you. Yeah. And this definitely differs depending on what setting someone is in. Um, but even in the rare disease space, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities where different within the U S um, there are different programs that offer, you know, to cover the cost of testing because as Dr. Campbell is highlighting, you know, there, there's some incentive for that company to do so working with a pharmaceutical company, um, or, you know, they're working with directly like a rare disease organization. Um, but I think it's really important for providers to be aware of the programs that are available, depending on what space they're working in. 
um, so that we are taking advantage of these programs and being able to limit the cost for patients to be paying out of pocket, you know, especially when some of these labs, it is very pricey. You know, you see what they're charging the insurance companies and it just seems wild. Um, anything else before we kind of move on to differences between inpatient versus outpatient settings? All right, we'll just jump right into that. Um, so there can be differences in the challenges between inpatient versus outpatient settings. Um, what are some of these challenges? Um, what can we see as being those differences between them? Go ahead, Dr. Campbell. So I, I think uh, it, it's worth mentioning that different institutions have different sorts of um, outlooks on, on what sort of testing is available in the inpatient setting because um, a lot of times we're not reimbursed for genetic testing that occurs in the inpatient setting because it's not a separate line item on the hospital bill. And so in a lot of cases, the genetic testing that we recommend inpatient just becomes a cost that the hospital um, doesn't get reimbursed for and it's just a loss. Um, and so a lot of hospitals around the country, children's hospitals have actually implemented utilization committees that sort of arbitrate whether or not um, genetic tests can be sent as an inpatient. And so, um, and we, we have one of those at the Texas Children's, or at, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I know that they've implemented those at Seattle Children's, I think um, also at, um, at Texas Children's. So um, I think that, you know, it, it is a, it's a serious issue if, if we're trying to, to limit the amount of inpatient testing, um, whereas other um, institutions are just able to send it on everybody. And so that just, um, demonstrates a disparity in care just because you happen to live close to one or the other um, type of institution. And uh, I think it's just worth saying how great it is that people can access that sort of thing um, in Columbus. Yeah, and, and knowing for healthcare providers that they're referring their patients of where should they refer their patients where maybe the patient won't have a cost of like, oh, if I send them to X university or program, they won't have to pay anything versus if I send them to the other one. Um, so I think that's also helpful to know where we're sending that. Um, Dr. Chartree, do you want to uh, jump in with that? Yeah, I mean, and I think that Dr. Kumar probably has more valuable things to say, I think, because there's an interesting transnational comparison here as well. But yeah, um, uh, Dr. Campbell, I mean, really hit the high points, right? Which is that at least in the US, in general, you should assume that you're not getting reimbursed at least for the costs of inpatient genetic testing. And then um, what I will say is um, I came from um, Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago where we did have a utilization review committee. Um, the model that we've adopted in Columbus, which predates my arrival, is that the, the utilization review committee is the medical geneticist. Um, so if you want an inpatient exome or genome, you need a medical geneticist to sign off on it, but that's the extent of your um, committee. The only requirement that we've adopted is, you know, a geneticist thinks that it is important for the child's care, full stop. Ideally, that means we're talking about results that are actionable during that admission, but we recognize that there are cases where looking at the totality of a child's uh, care and their expected post-discharge trajectory, that it is important to send genetic testing during an admission, even if we know it won't result until a week after discharge or something like that. And we, you know, we have a small enough group of physicians as well at, in medical genetics. Um, there's about eight of us that take inpatient consultations. 
um, and the institution has placed a great deal of trust in us to be reasonable stewards of uh, their resources. So, but as Dr. Campbell says, there are many different models and advantages and disadvantages um, uh, to how we do this in the US, but I really do wanna hear what Dr. Kumar has to say. Well, Go ahead. I, 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 I think in the UK, um, either the difference between the outpatient and inpatient setting is the urgency, I suppose, when a child is acutely unwell. Uh, so we can send the sample off for a rapid trio exome. Uh, there is an approval process, but um, you know um, it's usually um, uh, approved uh, in you know when when the child is acutely unwell and is suspected to have a genetic condition. Um, so that, I think I suppose that's the main difference in between the inpatient and out, outpatient setting. And how long would that approval process take? email and email and response oh, to that. Okay. So it's not like days or anything where no, the child's no, no, waiting. No, okay. No. So it's, it's still able to be rapid there. Um, yeah. yeah. Interesting just to see the, the differences. And, you know, I think for the U S it's very difficult because we're so large and, and we have different healthcare systems and, you know, settings um, for there, there isn't a standard way, um, you know, but certainly as we've talked about, there's pros and cons to a lot of this. Um, when talking about insurance, are there any specific coverage for testing or treatments that you would like to see increased, I guess, more, you know, on the U.S. side of things? Because insurance is, you know, there's a lot of issues with them and, and you know, we're, we're battling with them in terms of what should be covered. But is there anything in particular that we really think insurance needs to be covering this and it's, you know, it's really irresponsible for them maybe not to be covering that? Go ahead. I, I'll bite. Um, so I think everybody's going to guess all of my biases, but um, you know, I think that the group at Rady Children's led by Stephen Kingsmore has done a tremendous amount of work um, quantifying the diagnostic yield and clinical utility of rapid genome sequencing in, in critical care populations, at least, and particularly in the NICU. Um, they've also done a great deal of payer engagement, right? So credit where credit is due. They've worked with um, Medi-Cal, which is California Medicaid, um, as well as um, a number of other state payers um, around the country um, to increase um, coverage, reimbursement, or recognition of um, that. And there are now commercial payers who are partnering with specific labs or doing other efforts to increase the utilization and early utilization of um, rapid exome or genome sequencing in the ICU setting. Um, so that would be the most obvious way that I think we can improve coverage. And then the other is on the other side, if we make diagnoses, so improved coverage for medical nutrition for our metabolic patients. Um, again, so I don't follow any of our metabolic patients long-term. We have a metabolic clinic of board-certified metabolic docs who see them, but I certainly make these diagnoses in the NICU. I'm sure that Dr. Campbell does if he sees inpatient consultations. Um, they're, you know, it's one thing to give them metabolic formula while they're in the nursery and set them up with the G-tube and everything else, um, but this is a lifelong nutritional commitment. And for these patients, food is medicine and it's just not covered well in the U.S., yeah. And sometimes it can be very, very expensive, you know, yeah. these special formulas and everything. 
Um, it's not something that is, you know, a lot of people are accessing. So it becomes like, you know, that supply demand of, of just being very expensive. So I think that's, that's a good point. And one that I haven't heard raised really. Um, so I think that's, that's a good one to be bringing up. And Dr. Kingsmore has been on the show before. Um, so really, you know, fantastic, fantastic viewpoint there and everything. So people can go back and listen to our uh, older episodes to um, hear his viewpoints and everything. Um, switching gears a little bit because, oh, sorry, Dr. Campbell jump in. Yeah, I think that uh, absolutely we need to get more coverage and I don't want to make this sound like it's a, a genetics only problem. It's an entire American healthcare industry problem, but the, the whole process of prior authorization for genetic testing is just, I mean, it really is a travesty because even at the end of months of negotiation with an insurance company, they may tell you that they aren't going to tell you whether or not they'll cover the genetic testing until you, after you do the genetic testing, which just is like, um, to me, just seems like, how are we, how are we, how do we have a healthcare system where you can't know if your patient can have the thing until after they've had it? Yeah, which is kind of wild because when patients ask me about that and I say for certain things, like we don't know how much it's going to cost until you do it. It's like nothing else in the world works like that. You don't go to buy a car and then they say, oh, well, we can't tell you how much it is until you owe us money. Like that's not how it works. You learn about what are the prices for each car. You decide what works best. You shop around. Um, and it, you know, our healthcare system doesn't work like that. And genetic testing is, you know, I think one of the main problems with that of just not having transparency with costs. Um, and some labs offer like cash pay prices and different things there to help, you know, you always have that option, but yeah, it's very difficult to get a price before you actually send the sample. And some people may not really be able to afford that, or that's really going to impact their life. Um, so I think that's a, a really good point as well that I think we're all experiencing. Anything else before we kind of move on to different area of patient experience? All right, I'll go ahead. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what healthcare providers should keep in mind in terms of pretest counseling and obtaining proper consent. Um, so some things that we've brought up here are people are coming from a lot of different backgrounds. Some people are going to have, you know, working knowledge of genetics, whereas most are not. Um, so I think that's, you know, one area that I, I focus on in terms of, you know, do I have this patient's informed consent? Do they really understand the testing that we're ordering and what the implications of that could be? Um, are there any tips or advice that you guys have in mind of what we should be keeping in mind to have that goal of having true informed consent and what should be included in that pretest counseling part? Yes, go ahead. So I th think, and this is, I sound like a broken record, right? But I think that there is an important difference between counseling in the acute and critical care setting, as opposed to counseling in the ambulatory setting, for example, for um, static encephalopathy and a neurodevelopmental disability. Um, and I'd be happy to see if Dr. Campbell or Dr. Kamara agree with this distinction. But in the ICU setting, non-genetics professionals counsel about complicated tests with risks, benefits, and alternatives in time-sensitive, high-pressure situations all the time, okay? Um, unfortunately, those same professionals, it, at least in my experience, know so little about genetic testing that they can't 
have that sort of hyper-focused conversation necessarily with um, parents, for example, of parents of critically ill children in the NICU. But I think that they have all of the other communication skills that I think there's this huge untapped workforce that we could upskill to expand access to focused, like really targeted pretest counseling in acute care settings, um, which is important because a lot of places don't have access to really great inpatient genetic counseling resources, right? Um, you know, our institution, again, as part of my lab, we've funded, um, we have two FTEs, we have two genetic counselors that split their time between our fetal medicine clinic and the NICU. And so there's a genetic counselor who rounds in the neonatal ICU every day of the week, right? Which is not something that many NICUs necessarily um, have access to. Um, and so I think that that is very different, right? You're, you can focus your counseling on, this is the reason for the testing. Here are the, the very high points. These are the potential outcomes of testing. You don't have to talk about what is the genome? What is the difference between the next? Like these are things that frankly, parents in critical care settings just don't have bandwidth to do. You, you're not informing them by talking about those things. You're right. overwhelming them at that point. Yeah. It's like they're, they're going to probably be doing the testing. So yeah, as you said, like, what are the bullet points that we need to be highlighting? Yeah. It's not a setting where, oh, they're coming in for a visit. Like that's right. not, not the setting. No. Yeah. No, the way, the place where you need all of the extra skills and knowledge that genetic counselors come is if you can only choose between pre and post-test counseling, they're invaluable for post-test counseling, regardless of whether or not the testing is diagnostic or non-diagnostic. And the Australian acute care genomics study, I think really highlights that. Parents tell us they want time to review genetic testing results with genetic counselors. They don't want care conferences. Um, you know, They want one-on-one -on -one time with a genetic counselor to understand their results. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's well well said with that. And and from your experiences, how are patients usually informed, either the patients or the caregivers, depending on on the setting? How are people usually informed about the results? Because um, I know there's there's different approaches to this, either you know a, a phone call um, by a genetic counselor or geneticist, um, or updated through a portal, um, or they have a appointment set and expected that results will be available to review at that appointment. Um, what do you guys experience? How do you typically approach um, patient results? Dr. Campbell, yeah, how do you approach it? I mean, I think that uh, at least when I'm consulting in the inpatient setting, uh, we try to set up a family meeting and um, you know, deliver the, the results in person in the context of their ongoing critical illness so that there can be a sort of update from how the, the illness is progressing and then sort of putting the genetic information there in context um, you know, with the with the, the care, because as was stated before, you know, there are other things that are more pressing sometimes. Like, um, you know, if your child just had a major cardiac surgery, then, um, you know, the genetic test results may not be the highest priority in their mind. Um, but in the ambulatory setting, I think that um, I've tried a, a number of approaches, um, you know, in my clinical practice, whether that's telephone calls by the genetic counselor, um, video visits, um, or in person. 
And I think that I personally find that the, the patient-physician interaction in person is the most ideal, but even asking the parents of my patients what they prefer uh, often will get totally different answers. Some people really value that person-to-person -person interaction, and then others really value being able to, to feel safe in their own home and, and be able to have you know, their family there and not have to make the big the journey all the way to the middle of downtown Philadelphia. Um, and so maybe there's a way to sort of tailor the results disclosure to the person that's receiving the results, um, at least in the ambulatory setting. But I'd be interested to see what other people do. Yes, yes, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, if Dr. Kumar wants to go ahead, I'm happy to... I'm sorry. I've been having trouble with the internet connection. Um, so in terms of uh, giving out the results, you know, we, we are flexible. Uh, in some instances, you know, we uh, give the results out by letter, you know, if it's a completely normal result. Uh, but, you know, in, in some instances, we would arrange a follow-up appointment, especially if it's a positive result, uh, you know, we would, um, and in some instances, you know, we, we pre-book an appointment slot uh, to discuss the result. It's varies from patient to patient. Yeah, so I guess what I would, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is, again, a purely U.S. Um, thing, but um, the 21st Century Cures Act and the information blocking rule have sort of really had an impact on this and how we communicate results because um, we because we do um, uh, you know yeah. our um, own exome sequencing for example the the results of the exomes are sort of transparently available in the patient portal for the electronic health record that our health system uses um, and you know we do our best to try to as part of pretest counseling now includes information about the information blocking rule to try to get permission to embargo the results so that a clinician can review them and actually proactively disclose them rather than having families just read the exome reports, which are not really written in a way that is meant to be consumed by a patient, right? Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The story that I tell is a, um, a colleague of mine actually brought their child to see me as a patient um, and went through extensive pretest counseling. This was a non-genetics colleague, but a physician, um, and their child underwent exome sequencing, and they were fairly adamant that um, they and their partner wanted immediate access to the exome sequencing report when it was published, and they saw it, and it was a diagnostic finding, and they had so much regret after the fact that they saw this and even with their education could st still were really, really stressed in ways that I think a geneticist and certainly a genetic counselor could have predicted, you know, well in advance. Like, um, but it is the law of the land in the United States. Yeah, Dr. Kumar. So we wouldn't release genetic test results automatically. So um, yeah, um, the uh, clinician who requested the test contacts um, the patient. Yeah, and I see that's often, you know, what we're we're trying to do to avoid patients, you know, receiving results without someone there to help interpret and process 
that information. Um, now, I, I think it's just worth saying that like um, hit Dr. Kumar's reaction there is exactly what us as geneticists in the US feel too. And yet we are sort of at the mercy of legislation. Um, and so I think that that's just a perfect example of how um, sometimes legislation doesn't match um, you know, the clinical care. Um, although there are the sort of workarounds of pretest counseling um, that were mentioned before. Yeah. So yeah. It, is it that you have to release uh, the salt immediately or within a certain time frame? Immediately, though, unless you have explicit permission from the family to embargo the results, because they have asked you to embargo them, they must be made available immediately to the family. At the same time, they're made available to the clinician, which in practice, as one of the commenters in the audience points out, it means that not infrequently, we have families that are looking at the results before a clinician is. Yeah, and, and it's so tough because it didn't used to be that way. You know, um, when I started practicing, results were covered up until I had time to call the patient and then release it to them within a portal, um, you know, from a, a lab that I use. But now patients are calling me and saying, hey, I just saw my results. And, you know, that's the way I used to have it set up is that result negative results would be sent out after 24 hours, like normal results. Um, because if for some reason I couldn't get to it in that time, I feel comfortable patient receiving normal results. But, you know, for the positive results, I would have that. No, you cannot release that until I release it to the patient. But now that's just so different and, and certainly a challenge in genetics. Dr. Kumar, anything to add to this? Um, no, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I can imagine how difficult that could be, you know, if it happened here. <laughs> yeah, you don't have time to just either do the research if you've never heard of the condition or just get your thoughts together exactly how you're going to present this information because, you know, we also want to be using our counseling skills to be able to present this in, you know, informative way, but also be, you know, careful and respectful of human emotions and everything. So I think this is kind of a, a recent issue that's come up definitely in the, in the U.S. with that. So hopefully we're continuing to navigate this and I don't know if there'll be changes hopefully in the future where maybe we can avoid that from happening. Um, so in terms of some of the systematic barriers in accessibility of care, are there ones that we haven't talked about yet? I know we've identified some ways of just, you know, as we started the conversation of having the right patients be referred to genetics and that being, you know, one of the, the big barriers, but are there other barriers that are on your minds that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, Dr. Campbell. Yeah, one of the things that we haven't discussed is um, sort of the ability to access the healthcare system in general. Um, and one of the studies we recently did in telehealth, comparing outcomes for a patient seen in person to those seen by telehealth, is that sample collection, like actually getting the DNA, turns out to be a really big barrier um, in that about taking into account both insurance authorization and actually getting the DNA to the lab as many as half of patients that are sort of recommended to undergo testing never actually get a test done. Um, and it seems like those seen by telehealth because they're at home and it either takes a lot of energy to get that sample collection kit to their house and then back to wherever it goes because you know we all have busy lives and if you're working two jobs and um, you don't have time to be wasting with the UPS um, driver, then 
you know, it's, it's hard to make those things happen. And so I think that there are, there's more, there's certainly the problem of getting patients in the proverbial door, um, but then there's that next step of authorization and sample return, which um, at least our preliminary analysis suggests there are um, determinants, socioeconomic status, um, what language you speak at home, those sorts of things that are gonna really influence um, a lot of those barriers. And Dr. Kumar. Oh, he might be frozen. So Dr. Campbell, I had a question with that then. So um, do you ever take advantage of like mobile phlebotomists that will come and do house visits to collect a blood sample or saliva sample is sufficient so you don't really need to be including that? Yeah, our, our health system has not yet um, taken advantage of these mobile phlebotomy um, services, which I, I am aware of. And I think our one of our, um, our chief technology officers really excited about maybe partnering with um, one of these companies to see, because obviously it's not a, a problem that's just specific to genetics. Um, you know, there are a lot of different specialties where monitoring labs for say anti-epileptic medications um, are really important. And so uh, it's certainly not specific to us in particular, but I think that, you know, having, having somebody come to your house is, um, you know, a way to really make sure that that happens. Yeah. Um, because even, even when uh, the genetic counselor that, that sees patients with me calls the family to remind them sometimes three times, and we know that the sample collection kit has arrived because there's a tracking, uh, you know, outbound tracking number, and they agree that they have gotten the sample. Somehow it just, people's lives are really busy. They've got a lot of things on their mind. You know, they often have medically complex patients, you know, their, their children have medical problems and, and maybe getting that saliva kit back to the, back to the diagnostic lab is not their top priority, um, understandably so. And so what we can do to, to align the priorities in the right way, I think will, will be important going forward. Yeah. I think even in terms of sometimes having the kids sit down and give a saliva sample and okay, they can't eat or drink for 30 minutes before. And you know, there, there are some things that you kind of have to line up in terms of your day. Um, Dr. Kumar, anything else to add to this? Um, in terms of other factors, you know, once we have made a diagnosis, you know, supporting the patient and family, uh, especially in the community, um, you know, what one problem with having a tax funded system is that the resources are limited. So I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, children who have chronic conditions who need to be looked after in the community. Um, and, and sometimes you can run into difficulties there. Um, staffing is another issue um, to, uh, you know, especially with mainstreaming, uh, more and more uh, results are being generated and, you know, finding a sufficient number of GCs to cover all these requirements and, and, and all these specialties is another barrier. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly many that we could list, right? Um, in terms of one area where something that might be helping us in terms of, you know, patient experience and patient care um, are digital tools. So like pedigree builders, pre-visit questionnaires. Um, do any of you use any of these types of digital tools? Do you see this enhancing the patient experience or making it just easier in order to get this information and the accuracy with that? Yeah, Dr. Kumar, why don't you start? So, uh, so we, we selected an EPR for our hospital about five years ago, and it became very clear that none of the leading EPR providers had a, a good genomics module. 
So that's how we came across phenotypes and uh, the, our current EPR is being supplemented by phenotypes. Um, so one of the major problems I, you know, um, I found with the EPR was that, you know, you could not code um, rare diseases, essentially, you know, the, the newer genomic diagnosis, it just couldn't code. It couldn't capture HPO terms. Um, uh, our ophthalmology department uh, had started gene therapy for um, a, a form of retinopathy. And, you know, they needed to identify patients who had mutations in a particular gene, which the EPR couldn't do. So, you know, to have something like phenotypes where you can code genetic conditions, rare diseases, um, and uh, it, it, not even phenotypes has all the latest diagnoses, but at least have the gene which you can capture on phenotypes uh, and thereby you know, extract data and identify cohorts of patients who would benefit from a new intervention. Um, in this example, the gene therapy for RP65. So, uh, you know, that, that's been immensely helpful. Yeah, definitely, because sometimes the, the standard um, electronic health systems are just not up to par with what we need to be working with. And I think with genomics, it's so specialized in terms of what we need in that workflow. Um, so, yeah, really glad that phenotypes can help you, you know, bridge a lot of these gaps and everything. Um, either of you have any other experience with digital The other frustration tools? I have is, you know, I don't... The Sorry, other go frustration ahead. I have is I have been telling the EPR provider that they need to have this on their systems. You know, it's in their interest to have this, and I'm, I, I wouldn't be the only person asking for this. Uh, but it just hasn't happened in five years' time. You know, yeah, and find it really a long time in genetics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Dr. Chaudhry, do you want to jump in? Yeah, just to echo what Dr. Kumar said. When I joined the faculty here in Columbus, we actually brought in our current EHR vendor, which is one of the two major players in the US uh, market, um, to talk exactly about these issues and to lay out the needs of pediatric uh, genomic medicine and um, sort of rare disease genetics. Um, and there was just a complete crosstalk. It was um, you know, a discussion about a genomics module that was related to polygenic risk scores and, you know, adult onset cardiovascular disease and, you know, um, and um, adult cancer predisposition syndromes, which, I mean, yes, there are centers where all of genetics is located in one center and it's not a pediatric oriented place, but Cancer, gene cancer genetics is one slice of genetic medicine. It doesn't really touch the rest of the stuff. And um, just to echo what Dr. Kumar says, there's not, at least in my experience, a good model amongst the major EHRs. The one thing we do use um, is pre-visit review of systems um, checklists through um, our patient portal. I have found those to actually make my ambulatory visits few as they are these days, actually much smoother because um, those things come pre-filled. Um, and if I actually have time before clinic to even peek ahead of time to sort of reshape the visit, particularly for my unknown patients to say, you know, is any of the new review of system stuff change how I think about this patient or approach this visit? Yeah. Yeah. I do very similar things in terms of, you know, what patient information I can have ahead of time, you know, what questions they have or something to be able to uh, 
you know, shift the visit into what I think they really want to hear from and everything with that. Um, so yeah, really great just to hear how that, you know, helps your side, but also the patients probably have a smoother experience being able to prep better for this and just being able to use the EHRs, um, more smoothly with all of that. Another topic that has been, you know, I think more relevant, especially in terms of the pandemic is burnout. Unfortunately, it's very prevalent among healthcare providers. I think the pandemic has added a lot of layers of stress, um, onto us, especially in genetics. How do you think this impacts the patient experience of just our own experiences with burnout and, and how that might then affect patients? Anyone want to jump in with this? I can move on to the next question. <laughs> um, so there, oh, go ahead, go ahead Dr. Kumar. <laughs> Well, I mean, when the pandemic struck, you know, we were having discussions about whether to shift some of our clinics, uh, you know, to, to virtual. Uh, and then the pandemic hit, and within within a couple of weeks, all our clinics became virtual. Um, you know, it was such a dramatic change. And and thanks to the EPR plus phenotypes, we could do it. We could do clinics virtually, and um, you know, uh, we didn't skip a beat really we just carried on doing our clinical work i mean it's not ideal of course you know patients who need examination you know we got them to send in pictures um, but it's it's not ideal but still um, you know we carried on we 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 uh, saw most of, most of the patients we needed to see that way so yeah that was a, a big plus in in you know at, at the beginning of the pandemic when you know um most other specialists were struggling. Yeah, or just not being able to see patients because they didn't know how to adapt. So it's great that Phenotips was able to give you an option so that patients could still be seen and that it didn't impact the patient care as much as it, it would have if you didn't have Phenotips and everything. Um, so in terms of other you know, areas um, where we could be helping patients, I think one of them is just you know understanding that it can be very overwhelming for um, you know, care, parents, caregivers to be providing care and having their child be seen by all of these specialists. Are there any resources that you're aware of to help ease this burden? Um, are there any different tips you have in terms of identifying patients that could really benefit from a social worker or another healthcare provider that's um, more in this space? Um, so identifying ways for them to be seen by a social worker and also just other other resources for them just to make life a little bit easier. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Chardy. Yeah, so, um, so I don't think that everybody in the sort of collection of patients you're describing actually needs a social worker necessarily, although I think that they're wonderful. They're just hard to come by in my experience. Um, but um, I think what a lot of places have done for medically complex families are things like the existence of complex care clinics that can serve some of these roles, the existence of care coordinators or care navigators, whatever they're called. So when I was a resident at um, uh, the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and UPMC, I think the policy, at least at the time, was if you had 
if you saw three or more subspecialists, you would qualify for care navigation services, and they would take on the burden from the family for making sure you could see as many people as possible on a single day so that if you follow with six specialties, you're not seeing, you know, you're not making the trip in to see them on three different days on this week and two days on this week and really disrupting the parents' um, lives and the family's lives because they, yes, their child has complex healthcare needs, but they're also people and they have lives and they want to get on with those things. Yeah, definitely. And Anne's chiming in that that's how visit navigation still works at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. So you're, you're still accurate with that. Dr. Kumar, what do you have to add? So, so we have SWAN nurses, SWAN standing for syndrome without a name, uh, who you know, help these <laughs> families. And, and uh, sometimes they are no longer SWANs by the time they get to see the patient because thanks to you know, whole genome sequencing. Um, uh, and we also, for, for some time, we had um, a Lucy Booth peanuts reference, uh, you know, for um, psychology counseling, uh, you know, you, you walk in service. Um, uh, unfortunately, it hasn't continued, uh, but that, you know, some, some families, and especially when they are in a very stressful situation and they wanted to have some support, you know, that was one resource we could direct them to. Yeah, I think that's that's wonderful just to be able to provide resources and people that can just help with these processes, I think, um, are really great. And I want to remind our viewers that I have a lot of questions, but I want to prioritize your questions. Um, so I see a couple that have popped up in the chat, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. Um, but if you have questions or a comment that you wanted to chime in with, please use either the chat or for your questions, the Q&A box. Um, so definitely put them in there so that we can get to it before we wrap up today. Um, and let's see, we'll actually take the first question. Um, so the first question is, do you envision a role for clinics services for undiagnosed conditions where genomics to date may not have provided an answer? Um, so does anyone have a response in terms of looking at you know, a role for the undiagnosed conditions? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at the moment, you know, Genomics England has, hasn't made a plan, a formal plan to revisit some of these patients who have had whole genome sequencing and no mutation has been identified. So the pickup rate uh, from the 100,000 genome study and uh, the, the initial data from whole genome service, uh, the pickup rate is somewhere between 35, 40%, so 60 plus percentage. So uh, the data is there, we like to revisit it at some point, but at the moment, the priority is to get as many people and uh, older patients who don't have a diagnosis through the door. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. Anything else before I move on to uh, the next question we have in the queue here? All right, I'm gonna go for it. Is the patient ability to selectively consent to embargo on the release of results in Columbus a hospital-wide policy or specific to the genetic service? I am not confident on that answer. I believe it is available for any complex test that is available, but I cannot be sure since, I mean, I'm a geneticist, so I, I know what I know. Dr. Campbell might have an answer for us. 
Yeah, um, you know, in my other role as a clinical informaticist, uh, you know, I've got the pulse on our hospital at least, um, and that yeah, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, you can um, embargo the release of any test. Um, there's our EHR vendor has like a, a outstanding tests sort of like window where you can see all the tests that could potentially result, and you could be like, I want to embargo this one. Um, and when you do that, you have to give a justification for why that might be. And um, one of the justifications we haven't talked about on this show yet that is written into the law is that there are other, other people's health information, protected health information in the result. And so um, an industrious lawyer might decide that a trio exome sequencing could actually be embargoed because it contains other human beings protected health information. And so we're trying to decide whether whether our lawyers subscribe to that or not. Um, but um, at the very least, if you have talked to the patient before you sent the test and they said it was okay to embargo it, then no problem. Um, that's one of, the, one of the reasons. The other big categories of reasons are harm, where um, for example, um, you know, if, if a, an HIV test, for example, came back and a parent saw that their child had HIV, that could result in some sort of domestic violence. That would be a reasonable exception to embargo results. Um, but I don't think that many people have, the, the, the current reading of that is that it has to be physical harm, not emotional harm. Um, and so we can't really use that justification to block genetic test results. But I think um, you know, maybe there will be movements in this space as, as this law becomes more of a reality. And how does that work in terms of, you know, there's kind of two different ways that a patient could theoretically get results. One through like the actual hospital portal. So their patient portal. And second is directly through whatever laboratory is running it. So sometimes that might be the same. Sometimes it might be a lab within the hospital, but for a lot of genetic testing, a lot of people are sending it out to a different laboratory that's not within the same system. So that would be a different portal. When you put an embargo on that, is that only blocking it through hospital channels or is it also blocking it through like the lab specific portal? at least for my clinical practice and those of my colleagues, most of our, our results go through our send out labs. So there is no typical way that the, the, the patient themselves accesses the, the reference laboratories. Okay. So we thankfully don't have to worry about both directions, but I can imagine that other people that utilize those sorts of labs um, would have to worry about that. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking for myself, like if I were to do that, how would that work? <laughs> Um, so as we've been, you know, talking about, um, there's a lot of different ways that we can improve the patient experience and their care. And I think one part that we haven't talked about is incorporating patients' feedback, um, and obviously including the caregivers in this as well. Are there modules, methods that you guys have seen that are successful? Is there any um, ways that your department is receiving feedback from organizations um, I know Care Opinion in the UK or the Picker Institute is kind of on that list in terms of, um, you know, on the UK side. Go ahead, Dr. Kumar. So within our department, you know, we have been doing patient surveys uh, and each year focusing on particular aspects. And this year, you know, we did it electronically and it was focused on um, 
virtual consultations with versus face-to-face -face consultations. So 2021 gave us an opportunity to compare the two. And um, generally, um, virtual consultations were well-received. Uh, and, uh, you know, especially, you know, if you have um, an unwell cancer patient, you doesn't want to come into a hospital to be seen and counseled. Um, or uh, you know a family with a young with young children not wanting to uh, travel you know for a result for example um, so it, I, I think selected use of virtual uh, clinics have been successful and we intend to continue that uh, uh, in, in the future. Yeah, that's definitely been a recent addition to how we all operate and, and meet with patients there. Anything else that you see as being a good way to incorporate um, feedback? Yeah, Dr. Chowdhury. Yeah, so um, what I will say is on the ambulatory side, we participate in our hospital's patient feedback sort of system. I can't remember if it's LeapFrog or who does it for us, but I'm dubious of its value. Occasionally we get people actually write something on them and they're generally nice pats on the back or occasionally lay out something genuinely egregious where we look and we're like, oh, we can't be doing that. But most of it is the circling of these numbers on these boxes. I'm, I'm not convinced they actually correlate with anything meaningful for patients or families. But um, at least on the inpatient side in the NICU in particular, um, we have um, uh, a parent group that is facilitated by a psychologist that the hospital pays salary for um, that sort of acts as an advisory board. And it's not specific to genetics or genomics, but as a neonatologist, I have access to them. And as somebody who does research in the NICU, I have access to them. Um, and they've given us some really good feedback. Um, and so one of the things they identified was, I think, something Dr. Campbell touched on, which is if you want to do trio testing, which is the ideal for a rapid exome or genome in the critical care setting in particular, um, you've got to draw the parents and the child. And our standard of care has been for a long time that our parents essentially get registered as ambulatory patients and they wander down to the outpatient lab and get drawn whenever. Um, but the parents essentially told us that they come to the hospital when they can because some of these parents, you know, they have jobs that they can't take indefinitely from their kids can be in the NICU for a long time. So they work during mostly normal business hours. They get here when they get here. And when they get here, they don't want to leave their kid's side because they have been told repeatedly and not, you know, in a well-meaning way that your child is at risk for death. And they're like, look, I ain't going to the outpatient lab. I'm going to hold my baby's hand today, you know. And we know that, for example, it takes a median of two days from the time that counseling is completed in our facility to collect parental samples. Um, and it takes less than two days to do rapid whole genome sequencing. So, you know, we've taken that feedback and we're looking at innovative ways to do this. Can we get other staff? Can somebody actually draw the parents like in their child's room? Um, so. But that is feedback that was totally initiated by the parents who just said, look, you asked us why we take so long to go to the lab. It's because our kids are sick, you dummies. Right. You know? Yeah. And sometimes it's, we don't realize that until we hear from patients and then we're like, 
oh, that's common sense. Of course. Why didn't we think of that? But sometimes it takes patients speaking up for us to even realize that. Um, so yeah, hopefully on that side, some of the phlebotomists can, can take a walk and, and head over to the NICU and be able to draw people um, right there. But Dr. Campbell, did you have something else to add to this? Uh, I just wanted to say that I agree that the the number circling on our our press gainy, um, feedback is um, you know largely a pat on the back, but I think there is some information there because um, the the lowest marks that we used to get were access to care, and uh, with the with the, the development of telemedicine, those numbers significantly improved. Um, so I think that you know, it does suggest that there is some, some real data in, in that, but, um, but I agree. I, I question if we're going to make giant revelations from, from those sort of generic, um, customer satisfaction surveys that we sent. Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, if we're going through and giving one out of 10, you know, rating on everything that it's, it's not necessarily going to give us like an actual action that we need to change. Um, you know, it's certainly good to know what we're doing well, but I think it's even more important to know what we're not doing well. Um, and that I feel like you're only going to get from like a free written response, um, because otherwise, you know, it's probably not on our radar and then it's not going to be one of the line items, you know, that we've talked about there. Um, so we have just a couple minutes left. If anyone else viewing has a question, feel free to pop it in. Um, hopefully we'd have time here to answer. Um, but I wanted to kind of end. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I don't want to interrupt your ending, but uh, can I ask a question? I really actually yes. do want to see if Dr. Campbell has a minute to um, throw up what he wanted to talk. We were briefly talking about before the um, public session started because I was actually really excited about what he had. Yes, thank you, you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Dr. Campbell, go ahead. Yeah, I think that one of the other things that is a major barrier to access to care is that um, the, the, con the process of diagnostic odyssey is like really complicated and there's insurance authorization, there's clinical evaluation, there's sample collection, there's making sure that sample makes it to the lab, there's seeing that the results have actually happened and then communicating those results back to the patient. And um, I'm just gonna quickly share this um, little, um, diagram that we put together for a study. Um, and a lot of times we can actually miss diagnoses. And even at a place like the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where we try really hard to, to do really great genetics care, sometimes the little holes in the Swiss cheese model that any of the clinicians will have learned about um, sort of line up. And, and then we miss genetic diagnoses where you know, maybe we were supposed to get the results in our in-basket um, and that broke for whatever reason. And a lot of genetic counselors I know learned in genetic counseling school that you keep up with your patients on a big Excel spreadsheet. Um, but if you see thousands of, of patients, like you can't, you can't keep going back and forth between your electronic health record, your portal and, and your patient list. It's just not possible. And, and hopefully there's like a primary care team member, like a, a pediatrician or a, an internal medicine doctor that knows that this evaluation is going on and that, that uh, you know, hey, what happened to that? Um, and then the family hopefully knows, obviously, that they are undergoing genetic testing, but especially in the critical care arena, you know, maybe there are bigger issues that their child is going, um, having going on. And and so if they're worried about that major cardiac surgery, maybe they forgot that we sent this genetic testing. Um, and so when all those line up, you know, there's the, the chance for a missed genetic diagnosis. And so we, we came up with a, a comprehensive genetic 
test tracking system um, that is the replacement to that Excel spreadsheet where um, we have a form in our electronic health record where you very quickly can can indicate what you recommended for that patient. And then there's sort of like a, a dashboard where you can see all of your outstanding patients, where in the diagnostic odyssey they are and quickly see like wh where the genetic test results are. Um, and uh, it has sort of been a, an agile development cycle where um, the genetic counselor who works with me, shout out to Morgan McManus, um, has really helped me in improving the system. And we've gotten feedback from across the division to see sort of how we can improve it. And um, you know, it actually works. Um, here is um, a graph of whether or not we look at the um, results for a patient after the genetic test results. And on the x-axis is the number of days since that result was available. And then the y-axis is the percentage of patients that we actually looked at. And so, um, and so here on the, without the tracking system, you can see that we sort of miss a few percentage of patients. They sort of slip through our fingers. Um, but with the tracking system, we can catch all those patients. And so I think that um, having an integrated way to, to see all the patients um, at a bird's eye view is, is something that a lot of the HR vendors could do a better job of. That is just fantastic. Does that include um, samples you know, done in-house as well as samples sent elsewhere? It was originally developed for our, in, our inpatient work because that was the sort of hard hit, hardest hitting um, but we've since sort of expanded it to the ambulatory setting to, to also take into account insurance authorization and, and all that. Um, and I see that somebody has already wondered if this is an epic institution. And um, yeah, I think in the near future, hopefully we can work with our colleagues to set up um, a way for it to be more broadly accessible. But I'm glad that um, people are interested. Yeah, I got to say the when I when I round as a neonatologist or take on service, um, I usually cover our medical ICU team and our um, and our neuro ICU uh, patients. And I've got to say, there is at least one patient per week when I show up on service where there is a progress note that basically says, genetics consulted, testing pending, exome pending. And I was like, oh, let me find out. Sometimes it will say enrolled in rapid genome sequencing study. I was like, I'm the PI for that study. I should, surely I would know about this pending result. And you realize that they've actually had a genetic, they, they've had a molecular diagnosis for days, if not weeks, sitting in the ICU, patients sitting in the ICU. And it's not clear who does or doesn't know that this has actually happened, which is terrifying. Yeah, and so impressive that Dr. Campbell, you were able to develop this to eliminate patients like that of, of slipping through the cracks and everything. This is really exciting to look at. Um, so I really want to keep up with, you know, how this ends up being implemented in other, other places too. Um, I think there's a lot of, lot of buzz about this. Yeah. And I think the, 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 the sort of example of what you just described as happening is the exact reason why we tried to implement this because it it's not something that's unique to your institution. It happens everywhere. And, um, and I think that we can all uh, identify. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you all so much for coming on and sharing all of your expertise. I think we were able to dive into so many different areas of patient care and how we can improve that experience for patients and caregivers. So everybody viewing, you will see a feedback link in your browser when this webinar ends, as well as it being emailed to you. So please, we would really appreciate if you could take a minute to offer feedback so we can work to improve our upcoming series. The email will also include a link to the Phenotips speaker series page where you can also sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions. And if you want to access this at a later time, you can go to phenotips.com, click the resources tab, and the speaker series will pop up on the drop down menu. And all the installments are on there, um, as well as the, the video aspect. So it's not just audio, um, but also it's available as a podcast too. Um, so you can search for it that way if you're more of an audio person like me. Uh, the email will include a link to register for our upcoming March webinar. So set your calendars. March 24th, we're going to be talking about improving diagnostic yield in pediatric genetics. So focusing more on the pediatric side, kind of as we've done in this episode today. Um, so again, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Um, again, I'm going to give a shout out to my podcast called DNA Today. Um, you can access that by searching DNA Today in your podcast apps um, or by going to dnapodcast.com. Um, anything else to plug in terms of websites or anything else before we officially close out this episode? All right, I guess we are set then. Thank you everybody for tuning in for our 17th installment today. We really appreciated hosting you and we look forward to seeing you on March 24th.